Hello, everybody. Welcome to the 31st episode of the Manor Podcast. I'm your co-host, Roger Bodie, joined as always with my best friend and other co-host, Michael Hamilton. Michael, are you on Santa's naughty or nice list this year? <laughs> I don't, uh, I feel like I haven't done a lot of bad things, so hopefully the nice list. Well, what do you think he's bringing you this year then? Uh, you know, maybe, maybe it's time we had a talk. So, so Santa, uh, isn't real. Oh Yeah. Yeah. So I'm painfully aware of how unreal so, Santa is, but So he's not bringing me anything. That's fair. It's more of a Christmas question kind of a theme joke for the holiday spirit, but I guess if you're just going to be Scrooge McDuck over there, <laughs> I won't ask me. you any more Christmas questions, Michael. That's me, Scrooge McDuck. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What are you uh what is Santa bringing you for Christmas or how would you have answered that question? I think I'm getting a PlayStation 5 from Santa Claus slash my wife. That's pretty cool. Yeah, but we'll see. And if I don't get a PlayStation 5, I'll just send her home gym equipment, her home gym equipment back in the mail and then we'll call it even. Okay. <laughs> huh. Mm-hmm. Well, you want to talk about flesh and blood? <laughs> <laughs> what do you want to talk about flesh and blood? There's a lot that we could discuss in that topic. So I've been doing these coaching sessions for a while now. Oh, yeah? really, How could you sign up for those coaching sessions? <laughs> through, through the MNR cast Patreon, you can join oh, yeah, the highest the, tier. What's the URL for that? Is it www.patreon.com slash MNR cast? I hope so, because you just said that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I've noticed that there's like a th- like common things that most people could work on to get better. And I think I'm not even exempt of the, these like, these are the things that I focus on. And a lot of the time when I guess my coaching students come talk to me, these are kind of the things that I frequently point out as things they could work at. And I wanted to just kind of go through them. And I think that would help our audience a lot about figuring out what to work on, I guess. Okay. So I guess first things first, if like you want to get better or work on in the game, like, do you know how like the game works? Like, so you get to pick a hero and in classic constructed, you start at 40 life total points. And when you lose all of your 40 life total points, you lose the game. Do most people kind of know how that works? Yeah. Okay. That's good. That's a good start. So I think the things that I want to talk about aren't like, they aren't things that beginners won't be able to understand or like, at least like understand what I'm saying, though they might not appreciate like everything. But I think like most people will be able to learn something from this, even people that have played Flesh of Blood for a while. So hit me with your first example then. So the first thing that I think everyone should work on is make sure you're maximizing your value from hand to hand. And this is something we talk about. Not We don't talk about it a lot, but like kind of instinctually do with every hand is you're like, I have two, three blocks and maybe a scar for a scar and a snatch. So, and your three blocks are worth less than three points if you use them on offense. Maybe it's maybe blue autumn's touch and blue force of nature or something. And with that hand, you want to block with the two, three blocks and then play the scar for a scar with go again and then play the snatch. And that's like kind of basic, I guess. But like there's an alternative line of you could cast the force of nature fusing the autumn's touch to buff your scar for a scar and then you could play the scar for a scar for five and now if it hits it threatens to draw a card and then you play the snatch that also threatens to draw a card and if you just like add up the value from that you're getting nine points of value from that play using three cards and you can arsenal the blue autumn's touch but that's not a great arsenal versus if you just block with a two three blocks you're getting three points on each three blocks so that's six points and you're getting eight points of damage on your attacks for another eight damage just 
you get 14 points of value and no arsenal. And you just kind of want to look at the raw math. And that's usually how you should play your hand, I guess. And I think the first thing that sticks out is just make sure you're getting the most value out of every hand. Okay. So I guess my questions on that would be, doesn't that mean that people should almost never block in flesh and blood? Because almost always you're getting more value out of using your cards offensively than defensively. So that is pretty accurate for some decks. They should basically very rarely be blocking because most of the cards in a fight deck are better attacking than blocking. And the main times you block is when you have two blues and one and you just block with one of your blue three blocks because you can't really use the second blue efficiently. And outside of that, you probably shouldn't be blocking that often unless I guess the... I guess that the reason you would block other than because your hand, other than to maximize your hand's efficiency is to stop on hits or because these on hits are basically worth some amount of value. And that's another thing that we'll get to, but. <laughs> you okay? Am yeah. I, I, I thrown you for a loop with my first question? You, no, you no but you uh, <laughs> like, so every on hit, I guess I'm going to jump around. I probably should have had these in a different order. So when they are attacking you with a card that has an on hit, you should try to assign a value to that on hit. And this is another thing that was on my list, but that's fine. We're jumping around because this is a good question. So if your opponent plays a snatch, tax for four, if it hits, they draw a card. If they have one card in hand and they have no way to give the snatch go again, then the on hit is worth nothing because they're going to draw a card. They'll have two cards, the arsenal one, and then only draw three cards at the end of the turn. So the snatch on hit isn't netting anything. So it's basically because they're going to end up with the same amount of cards if the snatch was blocked out because they'd still arsenal and then draw four cards versus drawing a card off snatch and then drawing three cards in the turn. Same number, same number of total cards. And every time your opponent plays an on hit, you should try to assign a numeric value to it. So snatch with one card in hand with no go again, it's worth the on hits worth zero. Snatch with no cards in hand, you can kind of fi- try to figure out the average value of a card in their deck. Um, shortcut it's roughly three because blues aren't as good of arsenals as reds and most decks have some number of blues in them so like even if they have a bunch of reds zero for fours sometimes they're just going to draw blue off the snatch so it's pretty safe to roughly average out the value of a draw card to three um and then there's other things that other on hits that you can try to evaluate as well like if they play command and conquer depending on how much your card and arsenal is worth that's how much the value of the command and conquer is if they play a race face then you look at your hand and you're like, how much does this disrupt me? What is this costing me if it hits? And then you try to assign a numeric value to that. And that's how much that on hit is worth. Okay. What about like effects like crush effects? Because that's not just an on hit that has a damage threshold that it needs to crush. Yeah. So a crush effect is essentially the same as an on hit. The only difference is to prevent the on hit, you need to prevent all the damage except three or less. So math checks out. <laughs> if you look at like spinal crush, basically you need to block for six to prevent the on hit from happening if the on hit would mess with your hand which it does a lot of the time but you need to block for six to prevent the on hit from happening so the biggest difference between crush and regular on hits is if you over block let's say you block the spinal crush for seven maybe you have a three block and two two block equipment that you want to use on it then you're not throwing away damage whereas if you block a snatch with a three block and a two block equipment you're throwing away an extra point of value so that's really the only difference basically between crush effects and on hit effects is that you can kind of overblock the on hit effect otherwise you can evaluate them the same way whereas if they play a spinal crush you look at your hand you look at what your damage output is if the spinal crush effect doesn't happen if you just let's say if you took nine damage and it didn't have a crush effect what would be your hand's maximum then actually that doesn't matter because <laughs> you're either gonna block or your stuff will have 
or your stuff along go again. So you look at what happens if how you can most efficiently use your, your hand if the crush effect does happen and you don't get go again. So maybe you have two blues and a thunderquake and you can arsenal your last card. You don't really care about the crush effect. Or maybe you're Phi or Briar. And if you get eat this crush effect, you basically get to play one card and not really do anything with the other cards. In those situations, then you should look at what the highest value you can get out of your hand is. So if you have a four card hand with no arsenal and you have one three block, I'm, I'm trying to think of exact specific hands to give an example. And I didn't prepare specific <laughs> hands for this. So you don't have to give me specific examples. Okay. That's fine. Okay. Okay. I've noticed though, we focused exclusively on a third or not even a third, just like I think a fifth of the total card types in Flesh and Blood though, because we're talking exclusively about attack action so far. And we still have mm-hmm. non-attack, attack reactions, defense reactions, and instance to cover. So how do you evaluate the rate on those cards in your hand though? So attack reactions and defense reactions are both pretty face up what they're worth. They're usually just worth however much damage they say minus their cost. So a, for example, a razor reflex is worth three points of damage, costs one resource. So you just kind of figure out how that resource works into the curve of your hand. If you're going to have a resource for the razor reflex, then it's worth three damage. And sometimes the go again enables additional damage, which is nice. But like the main thing you're looking at is if you play your entire hand or different like subsets of cards rather than trying to evaluate each card individually. So like maybe it's maybe you have a blue and a one cost attack and a razor reflex. And you could kind of look at what happens if you pitch the blue to play the one cost attack and the razor reflex versus if you instead just block with your whole hand, which is worth more point, more value there. And that probably depends a lot on what your weapon is. If your weapon's like a Dawn Blade or something that you can spend your last resource efficiently to get more damage in, your hand's probably going to be more efficient attacking. But if not, it might just be more efficient to just block with your hand instead. Okay. But wouldn't Razor Reflex also be like one for four though? Because like if you get the action point though, so it has the range of being a one for three and a one for four because it could give you that action point which would add the last point of value right so assuming that you can use the action point yes but yeah yeah it's it's really weird to try to assign value to like individual cards like that because an action point's only worth whatever you do with the action point right an action point intrinsically should give you a point of value because cards that cost an action point are generally started to have one more power than cards that don't Mm -hmm. so it should be worth about one point of damage, but that's not always the case. It's really contextual. Well, I'm not saying hand. like point of damage. I'm saying like just point of value, right? So like you, you always say uh, an action point is usually worth around like one value, right? Like in the example you just gave where like normally, like I guess if the attack doesn't have go again, it would have an extra point of damage, but it could also have some other benefit aside from that as well. Um, like some kind of on hit effect or something like that. So like these kind of like abilities outside of um just like raw numbers on the card and attack or defense value are usually worth i guess like a like a resource or like a value of one right so like let's change um razor reflexes ability so that on hit you gain a resource that's it's, so gaining a resource versus gaining an action point those would still be four total value you're getting on hit right yeah Basically, but you have to make sure you're able to convert the resource or the action point into something because... Like, right, because accruing that value and not utilizing anything with it is meaningless. I get it. Yeah, you're just like wasting the value. So like 
instead of trying to assign a value to the razor reflex specifically, you should see like what your hand is worth if you play the razor reflex versus what your hand is worth if you block with the razor reflex. So, so let's say your hand is snatch razor reflex and a blue three block. Your your choices are you can play the snatch, pitch the blue to play the razor reflex, and I don't know what your weapon is. Your wep- what your weapon is matters a lot in this situation, but. Let's let's say instead of stash, let's simple it down. Let's go to wound, wounded blow, wounding blow, zero for four, no text. So basically, your options are you can block with the blue three block and snatch. You can block for five points with that and play the wounded bull, wounding blow for four points for a total of nine points of value. Or your other option is you can attack with the wounding blow and then pitch the blue and play a razor reflex, which would give you seven points of value. So in that case, it's generally better to block with the blue and the razor reflex unless you can use those two remaining resources and action point to get more than two points of damage there. What if your opponent has a defense reaction then then you don't get the go again though? So that's kind of the problem with conditional go against like razor reflex and also arachne's boots can lead to similar situations where ideally if it works as intended you'll get this point this much value and if it doesn't then you'll get less and that's kind of part of why cards like razor reflex have fallen out of favor is because when you take damage to keep a hand including razor reflex you're like pretty reliant on getting the go again from razor reflex if like if you keep a hand because it gets more damage by playing it but the way you get your action point is through the razor reflex, then if your opponent is able to block out the razor reflex, you miss out on a lot of value because you end up just like wasting two cards or wasting a full card or something. And then on the other hand, if you don't need the go again from the razor reflex, then you're going to waste that action point that the razor reflex generated for you. So it's kind of tricky to evaluate hands with the razor reflex because of this. And I think that the card isn't great for those reasons unless you are a deck that is both able to use the action point well and sure but i think this kind of proves like the underlying thing of what i'm getting at with all of my pseudo trolling pushing back questions though is okay. that we started at the premise that you should start with it, it the, with each hand your note says first prioritize should be to maximize the raw value of it but as we're getting it further and further into the weeds here on like what actual values are even myself struggles with this what is even the value of a card when i play it so it's hard to like maximize the value of something when you don't even know what it is to begin with i guess sure sure so i guess if you look at this hand of wounding blow plus razor reflex and let's say your weapon's just some weapon that you could spend one resource to attack. Harmonized Kadachi. Okay, let's say it's Harmonized Kadachi then. Well, then I would suggest pitching the blue and attacking with the two Kadachis and then flying the wound. Mm. <laughs> but if your weapon is Harmonized Kadachi, then, and you, you don't have a zero cost, I guess. So then you could, I guess if you look at it like that, then you have your three card hand that does seven damage. If you, if the Razor Reflex hits and gets go again, you can convert one of those two resources into one more damage. So that's eight total damage, which is still worse than blocking for five and attacking for four, because that would be nine total damage. And at that point, like you should just block with the cards. Awesome. We did it. We got through it. We got through the first sign of signing value to a hand. I'm I'm proud of us, Michael. So I'm going to jump back or jump to in my notes. I put this at the bottom, but I'm going to jump to it now. Wait, which direction are you jumping? Back? Forward? Sideways? Jumping down to... The next point, which is try to assign value to things that even even things that don't have a clear value. 
So we kind of talked about this a little bit during odd hits, but there are a lot of other cards, like you were saying, that's have value that's not really clear. Like if you put a channel like Frigid or a channel Mount Heroic into play, what is the value of that? And these things aren't things that you can easily assign value to, but you need to try to assign value to them. Otherwise, it'll be impossible to basically make make good decisions about how you're going to play the game. So one easy one is channel Mount Heroic. I think it's one of the easier ones to assign value to. So early in the game, if you can play your channel Mount Heroic and attack with a zero for four on the same turn, then immediately it's worth three points of damage. And then it's worth three more points of damage on the following turn for each attack action you play. Yeah. And there are weird shenanigans sometimes where you pitch two earth cards on your second turn and it stays around for an extra turn. But I think that's like far enough outside the norm that it's reasonable to not really... I think it's reasonable to kind of like ignore those cases where that happens because it doesn't happen very often unless your deck specifically built around that. But for the most part, it's not happening that often. So like if you look at a game state where the where it's early in the game and you have a blue earth card channel out heroic and a zero for four, then you can you kind of weigh the value of this channel out heroic that you're putting into play plus this blue earth card. So the turn you play it, it's going to be worth three if you just have a single zero for four that turn. And then it's worth three more damage for each turn card. It's worth three more damage for each attack you play the following turn. And that can be really hard to know how many attacks you're going to play the following turn. It's usually around two, sometimes three, sometimes a million if you play Force of Nature Fused and draw a bunch of cards. Yeah, we're going to get there. Don't worry about it. You kind of like all these different numbers don't actually like all these different possibilities only matter like only the average really matters. So I don't know what the average number of cards or attacks you're going to play the turn after you play a channel heroic if you have no arsenal and no embodiment of lightning. So I, I don't know exactly what the value of channel heroic is, I think. Or I would guess that the average is around two attacks the following turn. And that's kind of just from experience playing with and against Briar. I'm not a Briar expert. If someone runs the math and tells me the exact number is 2.4 something, I'd be like, okay. If you can assign a value to the channel heroic based on the fact that you're playing one card the turn you play it, one attack the turn you play it, then two attacks the following turn, that's nine points of value. That means that the blue you're pitching for it plus the channel heroic are worth nine on offense if you take that as you're getting one attack the turn you play and then two attacks turn after which again i don't know if that is correct and it obviously changes based on the context of the game if you're at three life you're probably not getting to play two attacks the following turn you're probably going to be in a spot where you have to block so what happens if the channel mount heroic when you're playing briar nets you an action point does that push it up to four points of value the first time you play it so you lead with like a nimbleism and then you play Channel Mount Heroic, and you get your embodiment of lightning, but you don't have the attack. So that's just one point of value that turn that you're getting off of it. So if you play Nimbleism, well, if you play Nimbleism into Channel with no attack, then your Nimbleism is a minus three, <laughs> or it's worth zero, basically. It's not a negative, but it's worth zero. And then the Channel, well, I guess like you evaluate it together. So like the Nimbleism plus the channel, plus the blue card is worth whatever that action point plus the channel is worth the following turn. And maybe having an embodiment means that you're going to get 2.6 attacks on average instead of two attacks on average the following turn because you have that extra action point. Then that would mean that the channel is worth three times that 2.6, which would be 7.2 points of value, which is fine. Not great for a blue and a channel yeah but what happens if you get to leave with a snatch on the following turn because of that and you get snatched on the go again but that pushes the on hit on the snatch because of that so you're not gonna know that when you play your channel like ideally 
the supercomputer would evaluate all these different possible hands you draw for the next turn and tell and be able to just come up with a numerically correct value for everything in every situation. And it would change based on the context of every card you've seen. Maybe there's still three snatches in your deck, then suddenly this embodiment of lightning is worth slightly more on your when your deck has these contents versus if you've played two of your snatches, then this embodiment of lightning might be worth less. But again, we're not supercomputers. We just try to figure out as close approximations as we can to what the value of everything based on math. So I do want to talk about some other kind of tricky cards. Another one that is commonly sees a lot of play, I guess, is Channel Lake Frigid. And in decks that are not Icelander, I think this card is, it can struggle to get its value when you play it. So it costs almost two full cards to play it. It costs a card and a two resources, so two-thirds of another card. And if you can't spend that last resource, it basically costs two full cards. And when you play Channel Lake Frigid, you basically need to make up for that two full cards or however much it costs you to play it. So if your opponent has a blue and three zero cost cards and you play a Channel Lake Frigid and pass, then their turn, you can kind of see what the value of their turn is by pitching this blue to play their three zero cost attacks and calculate that. So let's say your Fi opponent goes Rising Resentment into Blaze Headlong into Snatch or something. Then you add that up. You're like, that was worth 11 points of damage. And then you look at what their hand would have been if you didn't put a channel in play. And they go Rising Resentment into Blazing Headlong into Searing Ember Blade into Phoenix Flame into Snatch. And that's four extra damage. So if you could have blocked more than four points of damage with this this channel and the other card you used to pay for the channel, it would have been better to just block instead of play it out. Assuming you keep the channel around for one turn and you don't keep it around a second turn because hitting two ice cards is a big ask for most decks that play it, getting two ice cards to your pitch zone. So ideally you want to, again, have a supercomputer and tell you the average value of your opponent's hand if you don't play channel map or channel like frigid and tell you the average value of their hand if you do play it. And what it would actually do is take every possible hand that they could have and how likely they are, and it would compare the value of that hand with a channel in play versus that value of that hand without a channel in play. And that would tell you whether you should play the channel or the channel like frigid or not. And most hands in the game by most heroes, if you're only keeping a channel in play for one turn, it's usually you're usually not getting enough points of value out of it to make it worth playing. And a big part of that is because if they play, if they take three actions that turn, they need to pay three extra resources, which is one full card, whereas channel costs almost two full cards to play it. So like you're usually paying more for the channel than they're paying to pay for the channel taxes. Okay, math checks out. And then the last thing that I want to try to assign value to is putting permanence into play. Think of energy potion, amulet of ice, amulet of earth, frost hex, those kind of things that just stay there or situationally or stay there until you use them or stay there forever, depending on what they are. So a card like frost hex is at the end of the game, it's very simple to see how much the frost hex is worth. You look at how much damage the frost bites did, and that's how much damage the frost hex was worth. So if you have one frost hex in play and three of their turns, they took one damage from a frostbite, this frost hex was worth three points of damage because they took three damage from it basically. And you won't know until the end of the game, but most of the time it's going to be pretty difficult to get the six or seven points of value out of a frost hex that you really need for it to be worth it. And the reason it needs to be worth six or seven points is because you have to pitch a blue and play the frost hex 
which takes two full cards and two full cards usually block for about six or if they're worth three points each they should be worth about six points and the average card is worth a little bit more than three in class constructed but three is a fine base point and if you're just blocking with that in a three block blue then that would be six so other permanents amulet vice is a card that's i'm going to the isolated cards first because they're the easy ones <laughs> so it, amulet of ice is also generally just trades for a card so you play your amulet and then at some point you do an ice fuse they do whatever to whatever you let your thing resolve and then if they have zero or one resources left over at the end you can sacrifice your amulet device and they'll have to either pitch a full another card or discard a full card and it can get kind of awkward in multiples because if they have one resource floating and you sack amulet and they pitch another blue then they'll have two resources floating and then your next amulet doesn't work so if you have too many amulets in play and not enough ice fuse it can be hard to get the full value out of it and that's why you kind of need to evaluate those things like evaluate the value of the amulet device but a lot of the time it's just going to be worth a full card which you're happy to trade a card for a card most of the time or there's not really like it's i guess happy's the wrong way to put that you're breaking even most of the time which is fine and you kind of have some control over the timing of when you make that exchange such as you can time it on the ter- on a turn that briar just kept the channel mount heroic play and that's great because that makes it harder for her to get full value out of the channel mount heroic so another permanent is energy potion when you play energy potion it takes a card and an action point to play it and then at some point you're going to turn this energy potion into two resources and trading a card and an action point for two resources is a pretty bad deal just straight up it's a bad deal but the reason energy potion is powerful is because you can gain those two resources whenever you want. They're not, it's not, you're spending a card action point for two extra resources the next turn. It's not, unless you want it the next turn, but you you control when you get those resources. So maybe you want them on the turn that your hand, maybe having those two resources would turn your hand into dealing like six extra points of damage or something. And that can happen sometimes. It's not the average hand, but maybe you have multiple red one cost cards and having an energy potion can make can give you the ability to play both of them instead of having to pitch one to play the other yeah okay i'm following so when you're playing then you want to look at how much value you're getting out of energy potion and again we need a supercomputer that could tell you exactly how much value you get from it on average from turning whatever the hand that most optimally uses the energy potion into uh whatever it becomes when it uses that hand versus what it would be if you didn't have the energy potion the value of the hand and that's kind of how you get the value of it and that's really hard to do but you'll kind of you kind of want to pick up on it from just playing with the card and paying a lot of attention to how much value it's actually worth in the games that you activate it and play it and you can use that as your basis going forward to try to evaluate it sure so let's go back to our razor reflex hand let's say we use our razor reflex action point to play an energy potion did we get four points of value off of our reflex razor reflex then and then was energy potion worth it because we wouldn't have had any other way to spend our action point otherwise so again it really depends on how much value you get out of the energy potion later and you're gonna get two resources out of it right right but that those two resources are just worth whatever so the the energy potion the value of the energy potion is whatever the value of the hand that you use energy potion on would be if you used it most optimally without the energy potion versus what it becomes because you use the energy potion on it so if you look at a fight hand, and let's say we have two mounting angers, a Ronin Renegade, and a Lava Burst. So if you have Energy Potion, you can go pop Energy Potion, mounting anger for four, mounting anger for four, rising resentment for three, or Ronin Renegade, whatever I said, into Lava Burst. And that's four 
four for each mounting anger is eight plus three for the attack with Gogan, and then five for the lava burst would be 16 points of value. And let's say you don't have an you don't have an energy potion on that hand. The most efficient way you can use that hand now becomes pitch something to play a mounting anger. I can't believe you forgot to activate five to get your Phoenix flame for free, but well, no, I, I missed the I missed the five I missed the point. <laughs> seventeen points, seventeen points, eighteen if you have Shuko. And you, your tiger type Shuko, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's say that's the most efficient way to use that hand is eighteen points with the energy potion. And if you don't have the energy potion, now you look at the hand of Ronin Lava Burst and the two one for fours. And what is the most efficient thing you can do with that hand? It's probably pitch a mounting anger, play a mounting anger, play a Ronin Renegade play a lava burst then you get nine points there i would arsenal the lava burst but that's just me sure sure if if, if your arsenal has like a heart of final or something in it so we're just ignoring arsenal and <laughs> that's a whole another side like we're, we're we haven't touched arsenals for a reason buddy yeah that that just adds so much complexity to this and this is why this is why flesh and blood is such a like such a good game and it's all simple math but Simple math with another step and then another step and then another thing and another what if this, but another what if this. And like, it makes it really obfuscated about what the actual value of everything is. But like your goal is trying to figure out what the actual value of everything is, I guess. So if you jump back to that five hand and we say it's worth nine damage without the energy potion, six, 18 damage with the energy potion, then the energy potion is responsible for nine damage, right? Because you turn a nine damage hand into an 18 damage hand. And if we jump back to that five hand one more time, and instead of doing whatever the line was we did, maybe you get the opportunity to block with your hand and you can block with the two mounting angers and the lava burst, and then just play the zero for three then you'd block for seven and attack for three and that'd be 10 points of value. So again, you can get more value out of the hand, but like, and if, and if that was something you could do, then the energy potion would have been worth eight. And because you're going from 10 to 18 and that's how you can evaluate it during the game and after the game and, or after the game. And once you've played it in the game, but like when you're deciding to play an energy potion, you need to like, you kind of have to think about the average of if you were to play a thousand games from this game point, how much value are you going to get from it on average? But you can figure that out by calculating it after other games and kind of working from there to try to figure out what the average is going to be. All right. Well, we're talking about value. Next point. That's what this whole episode is about, baby. Uh, you want to maximize the value you get out of your equipment as well. And equipment's very different from hands because equipment is just a permanent that sits in play and you can use it whenever you want to, basically, for the most part. And dash exceptions apply. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And... <laughs> The first thing is most most equip or a lot of equipment blocks, and you want to try to get the most out of these blocks. And the most obvious response is, well, if it blocks for two, no matter what, it doesn't really matter when I use it, right? It's going to get two points of value. But you can reduce the value of your opponent's hand by stopping on hits. So if they play a snatch and you block with two two block equipment, then they block your two two block equipment blocked four points of damage, and whatever the value of that snatch on hit was they prevent it. So you want to try to use it when it's stopping on hits or stopping damage that's worth more than just damage. When it's damage that if it hits, it'll get something else, some other form of value. Yeah, like winning the game. Winning the game damage is pretty good on hits. That is that is fair. But like, lethal damage is still just like, it doesn't actually have an on hit. Like you die if it hits, but like if you blocked something else earlier with the armor, you just have two more, two more life. So it wouldn't be lethal at that point if that makes sense 
So like if you are using your armor to block vanilla damage that is lethal, then vanilla damage is damage without an on hit. Vanilla damage that is lethal, then you aren't getting you aren't getting extra value out of it because you're like, well, the on hit is I lose the game. You're just preventing vanilla damage. And if there was a spot earlier in the game where you could have used it to maybe get more than just preventing vanilla damage, then that would have been a better way to use it. Again, you this is like something that you figure out after the game and you go back and you try to like think if you used it in this spot, it would have been better. But is the average that they're not actually going to play another on hit? Obviously, blade break equipment. So you have to value the life you're getting or the value of it versus the future value that you could potentially get. So like a card like Tiger Stripe Shuko. So you could just block two damage plus a snatch and a two block in your hand early in the game to stop a snatch. But like, are you giving up like the ability to push extra damage in the future because you're doing that? So you obviously have to assign a value to the ability of the card while it sits in play as well, right? Yeah, and the value of Shuko over the course of a game is every time you trigger it, it's worth one point. And then when you block with it, you're getting two block out of it. So essentially, like if you block with it on turn one, you're getting the two value out of it and you're losing out on all the value from all the triggers. So you have to decide if blocking with it now is worth stopping the snatch on hit. And if there's maybe you also need to compare that to the value of just like if you block with a two block from your hand what would your hand be worth if you block with a two block and then from hand and and a different piece of armor and keep the shuko and these are all just like comparisons you just have to make during the game and you can kind of again play lots of games with tiger stripe shuko and you can figure out how much damage it gets you on average and then the two value from block maybe you trigger it about three times in most aggro mirrors and then you block that's five points value that it's worth but again you're not giving up the full five points if you block with it early you're still getting your two points of block and then if you're stopping a snatch on hit and you're valuing that at around three then you're still getting your full value out of it i guess what about the unpreventable damage nature of the value is what's that worth it's not worth anything unless it causes damage to go through that wouldn't go through yeah so against prism with spectral spectral shields or yender eye yender eye or oasis for spite if they wanted to oasis for spite your little attack or oldheim's earth reaction or crown of seeds yeah though though it's kind of weird against earth react and crown of seeds because the way it works is it doesn't eat up the prevention it just stops the prevention from happening so if you have a crown of seeds floating and shuko triggers this is i'm fairly certain this is how it works uh damage can't be prevented so the oldheim trigger will just prevent the next damage that would come the crown of seeds trigger i'm not the world champion so i'll take your word for it but i i need to call up josh scott after this episode is done just to make sure uh i'm fairly certain that's how it works and we can confirm afterwards but yeah so so the other thing with equipment is some equipment have activated abilities or abilities other than blocking that you sacrifice them to use and you kind of have to just again evaluate the delta and value of the hand that you use them on so if your hand without the equipment would be worth 10 points but if you sack your aether iron weave it's worth 16 points then the iron weave activation there is worth six points and you want to find the point in the game where that value is the highest it'll be during the game and that's when you should sacrifice your Do you subtract the value for any floating resources though then so let's say you crack over two resources and you only use one of those resources to push your 16 damage let's go to 15 no (laughs) because the total value of the hand is just however much uh, life you gain and damage you deal so okay so value is always assigned in damage yes so you get if you deal 16 damage and you would have dealt 
10 damage or your hand would have been worth 10 value because maybe you maybe if you don't use your aether and leave the optimal play is like block with two cards and then play another play something or something and that's how you get to 10 but with iron weave you can get to 16 and i don't know the exact line of cards that you're playing to make this happen but (laughs) then it doesn't matter if you just spend one of the two resources to the swingers at a thorn it doesn't like it doesn't matter that you waste the other resources it's just like what the difference in value is between using it there and not using it but what happens if you could have used that other resource later down the line for more value? So, again, so you get, let's say, if, if, if the Iron Weave activation is turning this hand from 10 to 16, mm-hmm. then later down the line, when you're looking at a brand new hand, and you look at your hand and you're like, man, if I had Aether Iron Weave, I could use both these two resources, and it's going to turn my hand from 11 into 16. It's still five different, five points of damage, and five is less than six. So that's just how you should compare it okay it doesn't matter whether you use both resources or not i'm just also keeping in like the history of like our yellow conversation so it's just like it's interesting that pitching a yellow and not getting the extra resource is really bad compared to pitching a blue but this resource that we're floating and throwing away doesn't matter so like so these are more talking about how you should play in game and the yellow conversation is more about a deck building issue where like if you're deck is pitching yellows every turn your deck is just not built as efficiently as possible well i mean if, if your deck's not built to maximize the two resources off of aether uh, iron weave then it should be you know built better to make sure you can always use those both the resources off of aether iron weave it's just a deck building issue. you don't need to always be able to use the two resources from aether iron weave oh okay because usually usually the most efficient use of your aether iron weave will the one that gives you the most points of value will be because it's using both resources. But generally, that'll be worth one more point of value than popping the iron weave and only using one resource. But that's not always the case. So in-game, you just want to look at what the value you actually get out of it is. And it doesn't matter. Okay, I agree. I'm with you so far. Okay. And the way you determine value is how much your hand would be worth if you didn't use the Aether Iron Weave and how much it's worth if you do use the Aether Iron Weave. And that value is just the total change in life totals. So you dealing, or I guess damage presented also. So you present 16 damage by sacrificing the Iron Weave, or you present 10 damage without sacrificing it, then it was worth six. Regardless of how many, whether you use one or both of those resources, the Iron Weave was worth six points of value. Sure, yeah, I'm, I'm all on board. I think this episode is best highlighting as to why I'm taking the LSAT and going into law and why you can nail an actuary exam. And <laughs> it's just like, it's just the difference between, you know, how our, our respective mind works. But your mind clearly is better for a game like Flesh and Blood because you're the world champion. And, and I'm, uh, I guess not. So I don't know if you noticed that. You didn't even go. Yeah. You know, it was fine. I didn't need to go. Okay. So we've been going for a while. I got two more points. I kind of want to move through a little quicker if that's. <laughs> Let's go for it. Let's go for it, baby. All right. So the next thing you can work on is learn your opponent's deck and build a game plan to beat it. So when you're playing Flesh and Blood against different decks, you're not going to know what everyone does at first. And as you play against them more, you'll learn what things they're doing that are powerful. And basically, there's almost always room to improve your game plan in a different deck. Maybe there's specific cards that line up really well into them. Or maybe you are diluting your main game plan by trying to interact with their game plan when you could just do your thing and they will die because your thing's stronger than their thing. And you don't actually need to try to find ways to interact with their thing and dilute your game plan. And the main way to 
learn these things is getting games in with the other other decks your opponent's decks and if you play their deck you'll kind of learn it better i guess and learn kind of what it's vulnerable to and i think just general understanding of different decks in the format is something that is always good to work on and another thing is if you don't have time or you don't have maybe you don't always play all the other decks it's also could be very helpful to kind of just watch replays of other decks or videos of them or even like there's a lot of content on a lot of different decks out there and if you watch that content it'll help you at least know what the other decks are trying to do and help you build a reasonable plan against it yeah like the content on www.patreon.com slash manor podcast where you can watch manor university and watch all kind of diverse matchups by the best players in the world as michael and i break down play by play is exactly what's going on one of the best resources for learning i think but go on michael all right i want to go to the next point and this is my last one so this one uh try to minimize your quote-unquote bad hands through deck building and sideboarding so in a lot of my examples i'd point to the value of a hand and be like yeah this is worth nine or this is worth ten and if you ever look at a four card hand and you're like this is worth nine or ten points of value something's probably going wrong and that's usually something that you can address through sideboarding differently or building your deck differently most most of the time if you draw a hand that's worth nine points of value then it's because then you're playing Icelander? No, your Icelander hands aren't worth nine points of value most of the time. They're usually more than that. Are they? Yeah. What do you mean? You got a bunch of three blocks, you got a bunch of waning moon stuff. If you if you have if you're if your hands up uh two blue frostings and a and a wounded bull, it's nine points of value if you're behind. Two blue frostings, a a, a random other blue and wounding bull. No, two blue frostings and the wounded bull. That's a three card hand. And uh ammo device. Okay. So that's worth way more than nine. Because first off, you can just block with two frostings and play the wounding bowl, and that's six points for the frostings and eight points for the wounding bowl. That's fourteen. Oh yeah. Okay. Second, if you have a four card hand because your opponent didn't attack or something, you can still play the amulet device, which is worth a card later, which we can value at around three. It's actually worth probably more than that because it's worth whatever the average value of a card in a constructed deck is, or the worst card in the worst card in their hand would how much the worst card of their hand would increase the value of their hand when you activate amulet device, which again, supercomputer, but probably a little more than three. <laughs> and you can also pitch the frosting to activate waiting, but now that you've played it, non-attack action for two more points, and then you can wounding bowl for eight, and that's 10 points plus the amulet device value, which is probably around three, so 13, much more than nine or 10. Okay. And again, so whenever you do have bad hands, that are not worth a lot of value. You really want to look at your deck and your sideboard decisions and try to think about what other, if you replace one of the cards, maybe a card that you're experimenting with or a card that just is in your hand, look at every, I guess, I guess basically look at every card in that hand and try to think about if you replace them with other cards, if any of them would significantly alter the value of the hand, significantly increase it basically. And if it would, you want to pay a lot of attention to that and try to find other spots where maybe this other card would be worth a lot too and maybe if there's enough spots where just switching maybe a mediocre blue for this other blue would increase the value of a hand the hands enough times then that's when you want to start making those changes and start changing your deck okay all right and then if a, if a card is also frequently responsible for hands that are not worth or hands that are weak or hands that are not worth enough value then that's probably where you want to look for a card to cut too makes sense to me or even a card that's just bad in the matchup that you're playing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all right 
And that's all my points. That's all the things I had to work on. So I'm going to read through them again, and then we'll go into whatever more questions you want to ask. <laughs> so maximize value hand-to-hand. Try to assign value to things, even things that don't have clear value. Maximize value of your equipment. Learn your opponent's deck and build a game plan to beat it. And minimize bad hands through deck building and sideboarding. Those are the five things to work on. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait to become a better five player through these five key steps. <laughs> Great. Great. Do you feel like this was helpful? Mm-hmm. I'm a much better five player than I was. I, I wanted to say 57 minutes, but it won't be 57 minutes by the time I'm done editing. But then I was <laughs> 45 minutes ago. Okay. Awesome. I'm glad to hear it. I feel like what we should do is we should we should tie a little bow on this episode and we could present it as Michael's good tips for getting good at fab good and then getting good at fab good and we should just have an episode called Roger ask Michael questions because <laughs> I feel like I could just ask you like three hours worth of questions based on everything you just went over here because like there's a lot <laughs> <laughs> And like, I feel like this also like informs our uh, other episode, other episode that you like the least, which is um, the tempo episode, mm-hmm. where uh, I'm also thinking of things much more contextually, and you're always thinking of things much more numerically. Mm-hmm. And so, a lot of my questions would would center around the concept of like tempo, and like, okay, here here's one. Here here's like. One question that my mind wandered off to maybe like 30 minutes ago, and it's just been sitting in the back of my mind ever since. So like, does the proportion of damage to the hero's life total matter? So like, a point of damage to Kano is worth a 30th of his life, where a point of damage to Oldheim is worth a 40th of his life. So do you get more value out of damaging Kano than you do Oldheim? So I would say no, but in general, in order for Kano to win against Oldheim or any hero that has 40 life, you need to find 10 additional points of value throughout the course of the game to make up for that life total gap in class constructed. And you do that by playing energy potion. What? Because <laughs> so, Kano always wants to play three energy potions. <laughs> so because Kano's damage is multiplicative, with Aether Wildfire into whatever, into Blazing Aether. Mm-hmm. Because it's multiplicative, a lot of the time Kano's losing the value exchange until he has that big turn, where and that turn is usually worth way, way more than any turn that any other hero would potentially do to him, basically. And that's kind of what he relies on to make up for the 10 life total gap. But you could still just calculate how much damage the Wildfire turn is worth whether he is and it doesn't really matter that he starts at 10 less life it just means that he has to if he started at 40 life it'd be the same he just have to win or he just have 10 more points of value to give up over the course of the game and because he's at 30 he just still just needs to win he just needs to win by 10 more points of value basically he needs to find 10 more points of value than his opponent does and then so like what about like decks that just die when they hit 11 life into icelander though like that's her finding that extra value but doesn't that mean like the damage that she's presenting scales differently than the damage that other heroes are presenting then as well i guess like if we don't even think about it, like ratios but i'm thinking about like damage scale like is there like any damage scaling that you have to evaluate in this game so I guess what basically I, I'm going to go to an extreme here. If you had a hero that started with one life total point, mm-hmm. then 
suddenly everything is a must block. You have to block everything. You can't take a point of damage. So even if your hand is more efficient to take all the damage, if you just die, then you obviously can't take all the damage. So like that life total difference makes it so the most efficient way to use your hand is off the table because you only have one life total point. And I wouldn't say that like damage is like you still like if you start at one life, they start at 40. You need to get 39 points of value over them throughout the course of the game. And you also have this condition where any damage you take kills you. So you have suddenly every one point of damage attack is a must block. And because every one point of damage is a must block, then it becomes harder to use your hand efficiently, right? Because if you block a Kadachi with a full card, then you're trading that card for one point of value because you're preventing one damage with it. Okay. So the sh- I think the that's my long-winded way of saying that having a lower life total when you get to lethal ranges changes how you have to play, but I don't think it actually changes the value of things because you're still just trying to win out in value over the course of the game. And if you are a hero that just loses, if you get to 10 health against Icelander, then you just have to win the game by 10 points of value before you get to that point. Or like you have to get 10 more points of value out of your cards above Icelander before you get to that point, basically. Okay. I think I'll disagree, but we'll pick this up in a different episode. (laughs) Okay. Any final thoughts that you have though, Michael? This episode was harder than I expected it to be. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. uh, Whenever you come into an episode, just trying to explain things to me, I'm always mm-hmm. going to be the devil's advocate or the contrarian or just, I guess, the dumbest p- person on the face of the planet because I want to make sure that every single person who wants to come in here and like actually learn and take things away isn't um, wasting their time, I guess. And I think one of the hardest elements to teaching is just realizing how much you take for granted or like not understanding the gaps on like what your true understanding in a matter is versus what they're not understanding and i just want to like address those gaps of like understanding more so most of the time so that's usually the train of thought i'm using when i'm questioning you unless i'm trying to troll you and who knows what that ratio is yeah there's that's it's sometimes hard to, to tell when it's a troll versus when it's a helpful question yeah, as you're well aware at this point, it's a great way to also disguise my actual stupidity because sometimes <laughs> I'll say something just dumb as fuck. And it's like, oh, I'm not actually dumb. I was trolling. <laughs> that is a classic Roger move. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a helpful life strategy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, well I guess on that note. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody, right. for listening. <laughs> And remember to like and subscribe. Yeah, absolutely. And the next time you're trying to learn how to maximize your value of flesh and blood, always remember, mind your manners. Thanks for listening. 